Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so today's episode is brought to you by Zencaster. And I remember back in the day where I was looking at putting together Zencaster, I was looking for a solution that would really help me in putting things together. And essentially, this is what allowed me to bring deal makers to life. I mean, basically, Zencaster, what it is, is an all-in-one solution where you just send the link to the person that you're looking to interview. Essentially, they would plug in their computer with their video, with the audio, and then basically you are good to go. You would just piece everything together, give it to your audio engineer, or even edit it yourself, and you are off to the races. Now, if you're looking at getting into podcasting, you should definitely check Zencaster out. And you could also get a 30% discount. And this is a discount code that you will be able to redeem by going into Zen, and that is csnzebraen.ai forward slash dealmakers and then number zero. And lastly, you know, I was very much blown away when I found out that investing in wine has been one of the best kept secrets amongst the ultra wealthy. And this is now not the case anymore. You know, I came across this solution, which is called VinoVest, and they are a great, great solution that allows you to diversify investing by implementing or including wines into your portfolio. I mean, take a look at this. Wine has one third of the volatility of the stock market, and yet it has outperformed the global equities market over the past 30 years with 10.6% annualized revenues. So it's a really good way to diversify your portfolio. And you could also get two months of free investing by just going into the Send and that is csnzebraen.ai forward slash dealmakers. And by just going there, you will be able to redeem your discount. Alrighty, hello everyone, and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today I'm very excited with the founder that we're going to be having as a guest. Uh, he is definitely building a hyper growth company. We're going to be learning quite a bit on uh, basically building, financing, scaling, you name it. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Reed McKinley-Stemple. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Alejandro. So originally born in Las Vegas and also raised in Las Vegas. I mean, unbelievable. I mean, how, how, how was life growing up there? It's interesting. Uh, I, I have to be honest. I think people probably expect it to be more exciting than it was. Um, I, I lived in a pretty, you know, regular average suburb, but you'd go into the strip every month or so for a show or to go to a restaurant or something like that. So it was pretty amazing to have that type of kind of bizarre uh, social atmosphere so close to home. And did you have like anyone in the family involved in entrepreneurship or anything like that? Or, or did this spark like a little bit later? No, actually, my parents are both uh, law professors in Las Vegas at, at the university, UNLV. And I would say very academic, not not necessarily super entrepreneurial, uh, but definitely uh, interested in what I'm working on now. I mean, you did follow that academic route because you, after after going to university, you were in research and then, and then also policy. So to a certain degree, 
you follow the footsteps until you didn't follow them any longer. So, yeah. so how, how, how was that journey for you then? Yeah. So, you know, growing up in a family of lawyers or law professors, I, I certainly thought that was one likely outcome for me. I always found the law was interesting intellectually. Uh, and so I think I probably expected I would go to law school at some point after college. I'm thankful that I had uh, a number of people in my life that are lawyers in their 20s and 30s who were pretty adamant that I try something else before going down that path. And I think they had good feedback from me as well, which, you know, they obviously saw something in what I found interesting and how I like to use creativity that they thought would not be a great fit for the legal realm. Uh, and so I, I'm really thankful for those, you know, friends and family that our lawyers um, had gone through law school and saw that it probably would not be my favorite profession to actually go down. Now, you before before the startup world, I mean, obviously you did a little bit of the uh entrepreneurship, you know, type of thing where you join, you know, a startup, a rocket ship, and then you went at it on your own. And we're going to talk about that in just a little bit. But one of the things that, that I come across a lot is some of the best founders are those that have uh, an experience or a background in consulting. And in, in your case, that's what you did too. So why do you think consulting prepares you so well for coming and entering entrepreneurship? It's really the best business education that I've, like, maybe the best theoretical business education that I've had in my career. And so I think about, you know, going to college, I learned a ton in those four years. But just in the couple years of doing consulting at Bain and Company, uh, I was exposed to a number of frameworks for thinking and actually like the theoretics of how to think around business that I would never have gotten exposure to in undergrad. And so to me, I found that to be very powerful foundation. Obviously, I don't think I would have been able to apply it at you know founding a startup if I had not gone and worked at another tech company after that and seen a little bit more of how the sausage was made. But I think one of the things that consulting really does well is teaching you how to think, uh, especially from a foundational layer, as well as giving yourself frameworks to approach new problems, uh, how to find the right data, when to use data, when to use instinct. Uh, and so that's probably, that's probably the reason I found it most helpful is just the foundation it set. I still felt that I needed to get a lot of the real world experience of actually working at a tech company and seeing the machinations of it. Uh, but certainly the foundation was important to me. And then what kind of worldview do you think it has opened up the fact that you've been living in so many places? I mean, North Carolina, eh, also in Washington, D.C., in Germany, eh, from Las Vegas, now in San Francisco. I mean, you, you've been all over the place, Reed. Yeah, I think the most interesting thing to me is how different, you know, behaviors that we take for granted around the user experience are based on where you're living, city or country. Um, for example, you know, I worked in fintech at a company called Plaid before starting Stitch. And having lived in Germany before uh, going to work at Plaid, I knew that fintech experiences were dramatically different for the German population. Than they are the US population. For example, Germany is heavily cash based. And so that's very different than the US. We're very card centric. A lot of your data then lives within an account. Uh, and so that plus examples of, you know, living in Las Vegas, you know, living on the East Coast, North Carolina, you take for granted that something that you do and expect to be normal is actually what everyone does. And so I've always been drawn to kind of platform companies where they can take a much more neutral view of the world of how something should look as user experience and allow companies to decide how to use those tools to build something for their specific demographics. So whether that's a company in LATAM using now Stitch's APIs and products to build something for their demographic that they know better than us, 
uh, or, a, uh, you know, a payments company in Europe or one in Southeast Asia. And so that's kind of been my experience is that you really can't uh, translate your own user behavior and user experience outside of your bubble uh, very well. You can kind of make some broad guesses and trends, uh, but ultimately anyone that's kind of like at the actual uh, ground level of a community is going to understand how users behave far better than you will. Now, in that regard, let's let's talk about, you know, also entering the startup world. So at what point does the idea of uh, joining Plet uh, come to mind? And, uh, and, and I mean, I'm sure that that was a really big jump for you going from like corporate and, and then all of a sudden, you know, you, you find yourself into this like fast paced, you know, type of uh, environment. So, so how was that process like? How was that switch like? If, if I reflect on my time at Bain and working in consulting, there were certain things I loved. Like, for example, I really loved the people I met. I thought they were incredibly smart, learned a ton from them, loved the foundational thinking and like frameworks that were provided to me in the business training. The thing that I never really loved about consulting and why I thought it'd be interesting to try startups is that it sometimes felt like you weren't actually solving the key issue for a company. Uh, you would be able to come give them kind of a bird's eye view of some issue that they're seeing in one uh, one function or some you know certain part of the business. But often what you do is you'd be spinning decks and analysis and then feeding it back to the C-suite and hoping that it got implemented. And so I always had kind of an issue personally with the disconnect between the theory of what should be done and then the actual implementation of how it gets done and what the actual result is. Uh, and I do think that you know cons consultancies do have really big impacts on companies that commit to implementing those things. But I was personally finding I was a little bit too removed from that process and didn't feel like I was getting the ground level view of how a business worked. I was getting more of the frameworks and you know theoretical thinking. Uh, and so just kind of randomly, uh, a sourcer from Plaid had reached out to me. Uh, while I was working there, I'd been thinking about moving out to the Bay Area because my then girlfriend, now wife, was going out to law school uh, out here. Uh, and so I was excited about the idea of working at a startup and kind of getting that experience. And then, you know, interviewing at Plaid, and it was a company I had not heard of before I started. It was, you know, 80, 85 people at the time. Uh, I think it was a Series B, $200 million company. Uh, but what I found was they were incredibly bright, similar to my peers at Bain but they were still in the motion of building something great. They were very much in the implementation phase of like, we just need people to do things. Like the market is here, the product is here. There's just a lot of like boots on the ground, things that we need to do. And so that was what really appealed to me is getting a little bit more of the operational viewpoint of how you actually go and change things fundamentally uh, within the business realm or at a, you know, uh, at, at a company itself. And so that was really the exciting piece for me to make the move to Plaid. And uh, I had a, you know, a great experience. I will say it is jarring at first going from more of a, you know, theoretical approach that a lot of the consultancies take, or maybe if you're an iBanker to something that's very hands-on and operational. Uh, but the thing that you learn pretty early on is that the frameworks that you, you know, learned in those previous very analytical roles sets you up really well to decide what's a priority and what's not a priority. And then you get to decide like, what is, you know, a lot of things are broken at a startup what's okay to stay broken and leave broken for a couple quarters versus what is an actual fundamental, you know, lever that will change the business's outcome in the next couple of years. And I found that to be really exciting once you started to take the prioritization and kind of uh, theoretical level of, you know, what should we do? And then actually being able to run with it because often at a startup, you know, the, the team is just grateful when you run with a problem and you start solving it because there's too many problems for uh, any C-suite or any, you know, 
team lead to to solve on their own. So I, I found that to be a really empowering experience. Now, obviously, you were mentioning, I mean, you you had the experience in consulting, and now in Plaid, you had the experience of being in a rocket ship. So, I mean, you developed a certain degree pattern recognition of what works really well. Uh, and I'm sure that you took that with you to develop later stitch. I guess in terms of that pattern and, and, and what really worked uh, with Plaid, I mean, what would you say that was? I'll give you one very concrete example before some of the other more high-level things that I think they did really well. But I think this is something that's underrated by a lot of entrepreneurs and companies. Plaid did employee onboarding exceedingly well. To be honest, probably better than my employee onboarding at Bain, which was also a great employee onboarding. And I was kind of shocked by that when I first started because, you know, this is an 80-person company. I had never worked at a startup. I kind of assumed it would be chaotic. And yes, there's a lot of chaos uh, at a startup, but it was clear that Plaid had invested from kind of a HR people ops perspective in making sure that employee onboarding after that two weeks, you could be really efficient and immediately start driving value for the company. And that's something that I carried with me to Stitch, where even before we had our first employee start, we did a lot of work on thinking through what the ideal employee onboarding would look like. Um, and I think we've done a pretty good job. Obviously, you can always get better. But the reason I found that so important for Plaid is I think it sets the tenor for the entire kind of relationship of you as an employee at this company, where yes, it's a startup. And I have a lot of friends that have worked at startups where you hear horror stories about how things are operated internally. When you got to a company like Plaid and you saw the onboarding at even you know a small size of 80, you knew this was a company that was taking itself seriously and that they expected others that were joining the team to rise to that level. So that's like maybe you know a smaller thing that gets overlooked sometimes, but I found it really impactful as a, you know, a new employee onboarding to the company. And then generally what I think Plaid did really well beyond that is they hired really smart, ambitious, but also kind people. And I think that's something that we talk a lot about at Stitch is like, what are the actual values that you have on the hiring side? I care a lot about both ambitious and empathetic people. So I think you need ambitious people that push a company to how can we get to a hundred billion or a trillion dollar outcome? like thinking really boldly, really creatively. But I think if you don't also kind of correct and make sure that they're empathetic individuals, you're going to end up with a lot of cutthroat politics, um, potentially some chagrin internally that actually stalls your ability to reach those objectives. So I, I think, you know, Plaid obviously did, a lot, lot, obviously did a lot of things well beyond that, like product, engineering talent, you know, go to market. Uh, but I think those are some of the things that I don't hear companies talk about as much that I found that they executed really well on. And I've thought a lot about as we started to pitch. So what, what, what is the ideal onboarding of an employee look like? Because I'm sure that there's a lot of people that listen and they're like, oh, I'm wondering what that looks like. Yeah. So, well, I'll give you a contrast. And then what I thought was a good experience at Plaid and what we do at Stitch here. Okay. The contrast is I, I've talked to a lot of friends that have joined a startup, you know, maybe it's 20, 50, 100, 200 people. And they're always surprised or you know, maybe they're not surprised because they've worked at other startups like this, but they jump in day one, maybe they get like a little guide or pamphlet on, you know, here's what your role is going to look like, or here's what the company does. Uh, but often it's like one or two onboarding sessions, and it's like, go create value. And that person is being dropped into a very low context environment. And I think the smartest individuals uh, can still find a way to make an impact, but they're definitely going to be less efficient than if, if they're in a context rich environment when they get dropped into a new experience. And so the way that we think about it uh, at Stitch, because I think Plaid did this really well, is that the first two weeks are a couple main objectives uh, around onboarding. The first is make sure that they have each individual 
has a really good understanding of what each function's role is at the company. So have the function lead of finance versus sales versus marketing uh, versus, you know, product engineering versus backend engineering actually provide an onboarding session that teaches the new employees something about the company, whether it's how you sell the product, uh, if you're sales or on the backend engineering team for us, it's what does an API call actually look like? What are our developers doing with the API? It doesn't matter to me if you're on the marketing team. I still want you to know that because that's going to matter a lot in terms of how we think about our product differentiation. So one objective is make sure they understand at a functional level what each team in the company does and what's most important for everyone else in the company to know about that team, even if you can't know everything. That's one thing. The second thing is how do you break down kind of the natural divides that are created uh, in an organization as it gets larger? And I think the biggest one is just if you don't know someone, it's much higher friction to ask them for something. And so I think about friction as something that matters a lot for whether you have the right communication cadence at a company. And so the other thing that we did, we did, and we kind of uh, emulated from what we saw at Plaid is that we'll also register a number of kind of um, coffee chats on the new employees calendar when they start. So you'll probably show up, you'll have maybe 10 onboarding sessions over the next two weeks that are an hour long with different functions. Uh, you'll also have like 10 to 15 coffee chats. It's a little overwhelming, but really what the intent there is for you to get more of a kind of personal relationship with people on different teams, but also learn what they're working on, also have that contact in the future so that there isn't friction when you're trying to communicate across the organization. And so those are always like the two biggest objectives. The third is, uh, of course, that we don't want to just hire people that know a lot about APIs because that's a very small set of talent in the world. And so we care a lot about how well do you know the product and what we do um, and how we talk about the product by the end of onboarding. And so I'd say those are probably the three primary objectives we think about in employee onboarding. Uh, and I think Plaid did a really good job with that as well. Hey, guys, so pardon the interruption here. I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieverson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com and we would love to take a look at helping you out. So then let's talk about Stitch. So at what point, you know, that's really the idea come to mind and, and for you to say, okay, let's, let's go. 
at Plaid, I worked on two different teams. And my last year and a half in particular, I started thinking a lot about uh, authentication. And so the, in my three years at Plaid, the first half, I was on the go-to-market team thinking about growth. Uh, the second half, I was on the product team. And the product surface area I was responsible for uh, was a product called adaptive authentication. And so this is a pretty core feature to how you know thousands of fintechs use Plaid today. If you're Robinhood or you're Coinbase or you're Venmo, you need to allow a user to authenticate their bank account in order to connect it to your application so they can fund the account in order to buy Bitcoin or a stock or send money to their friends. Um, or if you need to do an identity check, uh, for example. And so our team on the authentication team was responsible for kind of two different objectives around this bank account linkage experience. The first was, how can you increase security for the end users that are linking their bank account? So how do we prevent account takeovers, stolen funds from some you know hacker fraudster stealing their username and password, and then trying to go link it to Coinbase to buy Bitcoin? The second objective for us and focus area was also, how do you increase conversion of good users that are going through this funnel? Because if you think about it, if you sign up for Robinhood and you go through 10 steps to onboard, and then you get to the last step where Robinhood's about to make money and it's you connecting a bank account, every percentage that they lose there is really painful for them from a customer acquisition cost perspective. Uh, and of course, will then impact their ability to serve that user because they're not funding the account. And so it mattered a lot to our customers' conversion. It also, frankly, selfishly mattered a lot to Plaid because Plaid only monetizes when you can successfully connect a bank account. And so those were kind of the two pieces we focused on on the team security and conversion. And what was interesting to us is that you sometimes hear uh, a cliche uh, in the security world that anytime you need to improve security, you have to reduce convenience for the user to a degree. And I think one of the things that we found where that truism was actually not true was when working on uh, password-based authentication at Plaid, because what we realized was our biggest headache on the security side and our biggest uh, drop-off in the conversion funnel was actually the same cause. It was passwords and password-based authentication that were creating the issues for us. And so if you think about the security example, the biggest source of fraud in account takeovers and stolen funds is that end users uh, will likely use reuse passwords across dozens of different accounts online because we're asked to manage you know, 200 different usernames and passwords. And we find it easier to just use the same password across many different accounts. So what happens is that you'll see an attack on a company like Target.com or LinkedIn, something that's seemingly unrelated to finance. But immediately what attackers will do when they steal those 10 million usernames and passwords is they'll actually try to go send those to the banks and to the bank aggregators like Plaid and try to you know, disguise their traffic as real end users to see what percentage of these users at Target actually reuse the exact same password at Chase, Bank of America, Coinbase. And then that's a much more valuable account for them to steal because there's tens of thousands of dollars versus them having to order a physical good and then fence it. And so that was one big issue we had with passwords on the security side is that no matter how secure you can be and how you accept passwords into your login flow, there's always a chain of liability and risk that gets created by how well to do other companies that this user has a password with secure that password that they've created because that's just a memorized secret that then when breached can be used to take over other accounts. So that was one big issue that we had. And I think uh, Verizon had a good report that 81% of all account breaches online are caused by weak or stolen passwords. And that was definitely a pain point that we were dealing with. 
The other side, though, of conversion, uh, I mentioned that Plaid only makes money when you successfully connect a bank account. And we were shocked when we looked at our funnel to see that a very large double-digit percentage of our users dropped off because they forgot their passwords. So they may have even used another fintech app like Venmo in the past, but now when they are going to a financial budgeting app, uh, if they forgot their password, many people would say, you know, not worth the five minutes of friction for me to reset this, because then I also won't be able to log in on desktop, and it will just create a lot of headache for me as an end user. And so end users are very likely to drop off at that point, which becomes, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars lost in revenue to both Plaid as a provider, but also to our customers that are then therefore seeing higher acquisition costs because they had a lower conversion at the last step of the funnel. So to us, that was really frustrating that passwords were such a kind of epicenter on both the security side risk and also the conversion sync. And we started thinking about, you know, why couldn't you actually build passwordless authentication for these use cases? We had started to notice that companies like Square Cash or Cash App, uh, Revolut, Monzo Bank, uh, Slack, Medium had already started going passwordless. And when you talk to their growth and security teams about it, it had been a no brainer, both from a broad perspective and a conversion perspective. And so when we were curious about doing this at Plaid, we looked around the kind of landscape for authentication companies. You have the big incumbents like Okta and Auth0. And what we found was that they're architected around passwords as a service. And so they really didn't have the passwordless features that we were looking for if we wanted to build this in-house. And the other piece was they were built really inflexibly because they were built, built to solve passwords. And so they were built in a way where they actually didn't want the developer to have much control over how they integrated it because it was a security feature at the time. Don't let this end developer touch a memorized secret like a password. And that to us kind of like gave us the aha moment as my co-founder Juliana and I were having coffee one day and kind of, you know, hitting our heads against the wall on some of the authentication issues we were running into that there really wasn't a Stripe for authentication in our perspective. And what we meant by that, obviously Stripe for X is cliche at this point, but what we meant for that is something that is both an exceptional developer experience, but you also get a better end user experience on the other side, like they've done for payments. And that's what we wanted to do with passwordless authentication, make it really easy and flexible for apps and websites to incorporate it. And then as a result, um, you'd be able to get the benefits on the end user side of higher conversion, lower acquisition costs, higher lifetime value of those users, because they're not resetting passwords and dropping off at that step of the funnel. So then how do you guys make money with this? So we are a usage-based platform. Uh, we have kind of two different plans right now. There's a pay-as-you-go where there's not actually even a, a monthly minimum that you have to commit to. Uh, and that's 10 cents per monthly active user that covers all of our authentication products, unlimited logins per user per month. Uh, but it's, yeah, it's usage-based. There are a lot of enterprises that may not want to, they may want to, you know, price for scale if they have a million users or 10 million users. So what we do with them is we'll actually negotiate monthly minimum commitments that you can eat against with your usage. And then you can get a discount, you know, eight cents per monthly active user, seven cents, uh, depending on your scale. And that's typically how we price is on that usage-based pricing. And in terms of uh, raising money, I mean, for an operation like this, is it's capital intensive. But you guys got started in 2020 and you've been quite successful with raising money. How much capital have you guys raised today? Yeah, we've raised over 120 million uh, through our Series Seed, Series A, and Series B. Um, Benchmark let our seed, and then Thrive let our A, and Kotu just let our B uh, a couple months ago. Actually, wow! I mean, it's it's incredible that you went 
right away with the heavy hitters at a seed round because typically you would wait a little bit for like a Series A to really bring someone like Benchmark. So you went right at it. So what, what was the thinking, you know, be, be behind, you know, perhaps bringing the big guns right away? For us, it was thinking about the right partner fit. So who was the board member that we thought was going to have the most tangible, um, you know, impact on the probability of success for Stitch? And we had heard fantastic things about the board member that we work with and partner that we work with from Benchmark, Chathan Putagunta. Uh, you know, he's been on the board of MongoDB, Elastic, Modern Treasury. He's fantastic when it comes to developer-focused companies. And when we were pitching him, we realized in every conversation that we were getting way smarter around how to build and scale a developer experience company or a developer API company like Stitch. And so for us, it was kind of a no-brainer once they extended the term sheet and were interested in leading the seed. We knew that you know, we had a lot of good intuition about what we were building on the product side, but we had not seen anything near the different, you know, developer uh, experience company use cases and kind of different functions you need to scale, et cetera, uh, that Chafin had in his past. And so it's been amazing to have him on the board and then also more recently bring on, you know, Gora Bahuya from Thrive and Luca Swisher from Kotu. Now, typically you would wait you know, and, and you would give yourself at least 18 to 24 months between financing rounds. You literally raise the seed, the, the Series A and the Series B all within the same year. Why? It's interesting. Uh, you know, we hadn't intended to raise that quickly. And frankly, I think part of the calculation is that one of the benefits of this, you know, the traction we are seeing and the idea resonating with VCs is that often we were not going out to VCs and asking for money. Uh, they were coming to us and asking us if they could preempt our next round. And frankly, that was a very good uh, situation for us once we knew we had the right partners at the Series A and Series B, where these are VCs where we knew we were aligned on the mission, vision. They'd seen the traction. They're excited about where we were going. And they gave us you know, terms that made it so we didn't have to go waste three months, my co-founder and I, pitching every VC uh, on Sand Hill Road. And so for us, that allowed us to focus much more intently on product and scaling the organization. And so I think to answer your question, you know, we had never intended to raise capital this quickly, uh, but we are seeing the traction, we are seeing the demand, seeing that there's a lot to build and a lot of the team that we needed to scale out. And so when you find the right partner at the right terms, uh, and it just makes sense to us, that was kind of a no-brainer to partner with those funds. So probably some of the people listening, you know, are wondering what, what did Reed mean with preempting the, the next round? What, what, what does that look like, Reed? Yeah, so, you know, after the seed round, you start hearing from a lot of VCs that are, you know, interested in staying in touch, building the relationship for the next round. And frankly, like, you know, we'd love to chat with all of them, but you also have a company to build and uh, company, a company building is much more than fundraising. And so often what we respond with is, I'm sorry, we're heads down, like we're really working on the product, like, Let's, you know, maybe meet next year at some point once it makes more sense for us to consider a fundraise. And I think what was really interesting is that um, this is something that happened with both Thrive and Kotu, where they were just digging so deeply into the product space uh, through expert calls, through their own research, and thinking about what we were doing relative to companies like Okta and Auth0. So even though we were saying, you know, we're not fundraising, um, they were just being really helpful to us with customer intros. Uh, bringing their own research and analysis to us and kind of showing us all of the work that they were doing on their side to the point where, yes, we were not in fundraise mode, but they were showing to us that they were going to be really great partners for us to partner with. 
to the point where they knew we were not fundraising, but they would extend offers um, in the midst of kind of that relationship building. And so preempting really was like, we were not fundraising, but they were excited enough about what we were doing and what they were seeing in the market uh, that they effectively, you know, were thinking about how do we pull your fundraise forward? Uh, this is going to save you months of time in terms of fundraising and going out. And so you can focus on product. And for us, that was a really compelling pitch. Nice. Now, if you were to go to sleep tonight, Reed, and uh, you wake up, tremendous news, you wake up in a world five years later. And in that world, the vision of Stitch is fully realized. What does that world look like? So much less friction on the internet. To make this a little bit more tangible, our, our mission is to eliminate friction on the internet. And we think one of the biggest pieces of friction is authentication friction and passwords in particular. So obviously that's part of kind of the near-term strategy is how do you eliminate passwords? But we see a lot of problems beyond just password creation and remembrance when it comes to how users sign up and access applications securely. We see that most of us are asked to fill out the exact same fields when we go from application one to two to three to four. And it's kind of crazy to us because we have a logged in state on our laptop or a browser, but we're still asked to jump through the same hoops to use these different products. And I think friction has a real cost and it's not even just to businesses. Obviously businesses see this every day when they lose a user in their funnel that they can't convert and or a user drops out because they forgot their password. But the end user experience also hurts them where, what if you don't sign up for that budgeting app because it was just a little too much friction and so therefore you don't balance your books? Or for example, you know, I've been trying to get a doctor's appointment for the last couple months and every time I was asked for my health insurance card, uh, I would think to myself, you know, I have no idea what this is. Like, I don't want to spend like the five minutes combing through my email, trying to find it, going into different login portals and resetting my password. And it's a small thing, but I think humans are just generally uh, deterred by friction. And so when I think about where things could be in five years with the products that we're building, it's effectively, we think about how could you create a passport for the internet where a user can have one very secure or a couple very secure passwordless authentication methods, whether that's face ID or touch ID um, or one, one click kind of email verification. And then that allows them to share and provision any data that might be relevant for a particular app. So whether that's health data for this health tech, company that you're trying to onboard to, whether that's, you know, financial or identity data for this fintech, uh, or that's just general, you know, personal identity information for the SaaS application that you're signing up for. So we, we see a world not only where passwords are gone in five years, but hopefully if we've done our jobs right, you have many fewer fields and forms to fill out online because you have this kind of logged in identity that's both very secure through things like biometrics, but also very seamless for an end user to share across the web. Now. Imagine if I put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time, perhaps to that moment where you were thinking about starting Stitch and you have the opportunity of giving a piece of advice to that younger self, you know, before starting the company. What would that be and why, given what you know now, Reed? It's a great question. You know, two things. One is like, obviously, I did go out and start the company, so I would... I would give the positive affirmation that like, just do it. Like I, I know I was thinking through it very analytically at the time, which was leaving a good job during the beginning of the pandemic, um, kind of the cost of that, as well as I was still vesting my, you know, the fourth year, my last year of my initial grant at Plaid, which obviously Plaid's a really valuable company. And so there's, you know, definitely definite financial uh, questions in the equation. I think, you know, looking back at it, it was 100% the right move, both from a um, 
interest level I have in this role and like how much fun I'm having as a founder. So I, I would give my former self that positive affirmation to just go for it. You know, we had done the research. We knew it was a big market. Uh, it's great to see how quickly things have moved. But even if they didn't move this quickly, it would have been an amazing experience. And, and I would give that positive affirmation. The other thing I would think through is the faster you scale and the farther away you get from being an employee, the easier it is to forget certain elements of how you felt as an employee now that you're in the founder position. And so I would like write down everything that you find you'd want to improve in a future employer experience and think about how you would do that as a founder of your own company. And so, for example, I think we did a lot of that to start with Stitch, but there are also things I learn on kind of a continuous basis where uh, one of the things I say to other friends that are founders is, I really don't think that you can repeat yourself too much as a founder. You always take for granted how much context you have in your head versus the rest of the team has. And so those are things where, you know, even if a founder is doing a really great job at a company, you might say, I don't know how X product fits into our vision or roadmap. Those are the types of things where like internal communication becomes really important. Uh, and so that's definitely something that, you know, I was aware of when I started the company, but it's probably even something I would nudge myself, my former self down uh, that road to think a little bit more intently about, which is what are all of the things that you feel right now as an employee? Uh, and how would you want to take, you know, demonstrable action to uh, address that in your future role as a founder? That's very profound. I love that read. So for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Yeah, so a couple different ways. If you're more, if you're interested in learning more about Stitch, you can go to stitch.com. That's S-T-Y-T-C-H. And you can either sign up directly and get started, or we also have an option to talk to an auth expert. Uh, I see all of those requests, so uh, I can't guarantee I can get on every call, but I'll, I'll try to help out if you're looking for help on going passwordless. Um, also, you can reach me on Twitter. I check my DMs. Uh, and my Twitter handle is Mixtemple. Uh, I have a very long name, so it's concatenated to M-C-S-T-E-M-P-E-L. Amazing. Well, Reed, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, Share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.